0: for he is my only child and behold a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out it convulses him and he's uh, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him and i begged your disciples to cast it out but they could not jesus answered o oh, faithless and twisted generation How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were there, all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus said, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Please be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. O Heavenly Father, We have so much to learn from your word. As we were even talking about in Sunday school, oh, the places where we have blind spots, where we don't see our sin. So we do ask, Lord, and we believe that your word is powerful to convict, to pierce through even our very souls and to show us where that sin is resides, to transform us by the powerful working of your spirit by your word. Lord, may that occur this morning so that we may be conformed to your son. Change us, Lord. We pray this confident in your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage, we need to remember what we just saw and heard at that momentous occasion in last week's sermon, in last week's passage. The glorious Mount of Transfiguration. What do we see there? We saw a sneak peek of the Son of God in His splendor and majesty. We saw that veil pulled back So we saw his very glory, clouds encircling the mountain, not just any clouds, but the very cloud of glory of God, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire that followed Israel. And then we saw the brightness of Christ's majesty uh, radiating like, like a thousand firecrackers on the 4th of July. But that's not all we heard a conversation with none other than Moses and Elijah about an exodus that was about to occur. Not just any exodus, but a new exodus that Jesus was about to lead to Jerusalem and at Jerusalem through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension. And then to top it all or off, we heard the very voice of God the Father echoing over the mountaintop. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Every single one of these glorious uh, features of the mountain pointing like arrows to Jesus Christ. Focus on this one. Listen to this one. Hear this authoritative word from his mouth. So what do we expect to find the disciples doing when Jesus comes down the mountain, Peter, James, and John. We'd expect them to be listening. To find them focused in on what Jesus is saying. Fixated on his glorious person and work. We'd expect them to be listening attentively to their master. But that's not what we find. No, instead we find a series of one after another, of epic fails. Now, kids, you know the difference between a fail and an epic fail, right? Now, fail, it's like when you know you, you, you slip on a banana peel fall on the ground. But an epic fail is when you slip over that banana peel and fall face first into a big pile of mud. A fail is when you, you trip off your skateboard. But an epic fail is when you trip off the skateboard right into, you know, a big pile of, I don't know, let's say a big pile of fruit. And it goes falling all over the streets. It's a fail. It's a momentous fail. A big fail. And we see several of them in our passage. At first you might have heard uh, me read this passage. You said, huh kind of random, you know, just one story to another to another. But there's a thread that weaves through all these passages, all these stories, these true accounts. And what is it? It's failure, epic failure of these disciples. And it's all pointing to a very important lesson about discipleship. You can't share in Christ's glory unless we embrace his suffering unless we embrace his humility unless we embrace his service well luke sets the scene for these series of failures in verse 37 and jesus has just come down the mountain of transfiguration with all its glory and what a contrast he sees Right? He had just, just spent a retreat on the mountain with the company of none other than Moses and Elijah. And now, who's he with? A crowd of needy, desperate, sick people. He had just been surrounded by the very cloud of glory. And now, the powers of darkness lurk over this scene. Kingdom of darkness And he had just heard the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved son, the chosen one. But now what does he hear? A single voice of a father rising out of the crowd, a desperate voice. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. This man's only son is tormented by an evil spirit, by a demon. Just look at the vivid way that Luke describes this demon possession. It is heartbreaking. The The demon seizes the child. It convulses him. It shatters him. The poor boy starts foaming at the mouth. And then Luke uses a word that pictures a wrestler dashing his opponent to the ground. The demon throws the boy to the floor. Luke is going out of his way to show us something that he's been getting at in several other narratives. And it's that demon possession, that spiritual oppression is real. It's real. You'll find... You know, a lot of some of the commentaries I, I, I looked at, modern scholars will come to this and say, you know, to an ancient mind, to an ancient eyes, uh, what's going on here might have seemed like demon possession, but, but now we know that what's really at work here was, was a, a very sad case of epilepsy. But Dr. Luke, in his day, was aware of epilepsy. He was aware of illnesses and conditions. He wants to point us to something deeper that was at work, at least in this situation. The kingdom of darkness has a hold on the world. A very real hold. A hold that we we should do well to Observe today rather than just to write it off as, as, as ancient talk. It's a disheartening scene we see. You can imagine if you were, this was your only child. But that's what makes the next words in this passage so disheartening. Verse 40, the boy's father says this, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Well, why couldn't they? Why couldn't the disciples do this? Because back in chapter 9, verse 1, what did Jesus say? He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And up to this point, that's what they've been doing. They've been casting out demons. They've been doing this work. They came to Jesus and said, look, our mission was successful. So what's changed since Jesus went up on the mountain? Well, we see the answer in verse 41. Faithlessness. Faithlessness. Jesus cries out. You can hear almost the holy frustration in his voice. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. We've heard these words already today. Back in our Old Testament passage, they come straight from Deuteronomy 32. And what's happening in that passage? Moses is is, uh, preaching to Israel. And he's calling out the Israelites during the Exodus for their faithlessness. This is interesting. Back in 31, verse 31, we just heard about an exodus. Jesus described his journey all the way to Jerusalem as a new exodus that he was about to bring to fulfillment in his death, his burial, his resurrection. And and what is Jesus starring in as in that exodus? He's that greater Moses who leads the people, out of their sin and misery into the promised land. Well now, in just this one phrase, we see who the disciples are starring as in this new exodus. They're starring as the faithless, grumbling people of God who basically have to be dragged to the promised land. Dragged all the way to Jerusalem and even beyond. So you can hear that holy frustration in Jesus' words once again. How long am I to to be with you and bear with you? So, in the face of this failure, this first epic failure of the disciples, Jesus steps in to do what these faithless disciples could not would not do. Bring the boy to me. And he rebukes the demon, heals the boy, returns him to his father, and Luke tells us, all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now we should be utterly amazed at Christ's power over the kingdom of darkness. Jesus has power over demons. Even demons as fierce and brutal as this one. Now that's an encouragement as we look to our Savior and his power. But this passage isn't primarily about that. It wants us to see the failure of these disciples. And it wants us to really take it in and think about it. And so, right after this epic failure, Luke gives us three more three short scenes that give us a deeper look at the the faithlessness of these disciples, the kind of discipleship he's calling us to. So what does Jesus mean when he calls his disciples a faithless and twisted generation? What does that mean for us? Well, I want to answer that in three ways by looking at these three short scenes Scenes that follow our first uh, failure. First, a faithless generation wants glory, but without suffering. A, fa- a faithless generation wants glory without suffering. We see it uh, starting off in verse 43. While they were all marveling at everything, Jesus was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now that's an abrupt shift, isn't it? That's, like, whoa, where did that come from, Jesus? Jesus sees his disciples ooing and aahing over his, uh, his fresh miracle, He knows their hearts. And so he wants to make crystal clear that they understand the main point of his ministry. What, what did Jesus come to do? He didn't come to Im- just impress people with cool miracles, He came to suffer, to die for sinners. It's like a banner that hangs over the whole of Christ's ministry came to deal with the problem of sin. And he puts it this way in our passage, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now there's there's mystery in those words, right? But one thing is perfectly clear. Before Jesus gets anywhere near glory, he's going to face humiliation and suffering. Delivered into the hands of men. All of it goes right over the head of the disciples. For the second time now, Jesus has told them about his humiliation, his rejection, his suffering to come. But what's the first thing we hear after he tells them this? A quadruple negative, just to show how much they missed this. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about his saying. Four negatives straight in a row. Well, Something is going on here. We see that God is actually somehow concealing how suffering and glory is going to fit together. There's something deeper going on here but it doesn't excuse the disciples. Did you notice that? The disciples still uh, bear the responsibility for the saying going right over their head. They are so enamored with their expectations of glory, the majesty they just saw in the miracle, that they've taken their eyes off the suffering of the cross. They want glory. They love the miracles. They crave them. Oh, for another day on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus, you've you got to stop talking about this suffering thing. You've got you to stop talking about delivered, being delivered over to the hands of men. It's creeping us out, Jesus. Jesus. This is a a failure of a faithless generation, but does it describe us? Does this get uncomfortably close to to the kind of discipleship that we we seek out? We love to talk about the cross. The cross has an important central place in our worship. But does the cross enter into our discipleship? to self-denial, saying no to sin every day. Is that the kind of discipleship we want to sign ourselves up for? And to be honest, I'd say some days, many days, no, I I want the glory. But I don't want to follow Jesus through that suffering. Sometimes I'd rather he not talk about it so much. But it's central to discipleship. Second failure of a faithless generation follows right after this first one. A faithless generation, yes, wants glory without suffering, but it also wants greatness apart from humility. What's greatness apart from humility? Verse 46: an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Wow. Now, this has to win an award for something. It has to win an award for the most, I don't know, you could say, pathetic debate in the history of mankind. Who knows how the argument started up in the first place. You know, maybe Peter said, I was the first that Jesus called. I was the first that Jesus, uh, who made that, that glorious confession that Jesus was the Christ. I deserve that place at his right hand. You all know it. And then someone fired off. Remember what he said to you, Peter, right after you confessed it? Get behind me, Satan. So there's back and forth between the disciples, uh, battling over this place, this place of greatness. One thing is clear in all this. These disciples are acting more like Roman soldiers than disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus just told them, I'm about to, to suffer. I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. And what are they arguing about? Privilege, importance, greatness. Maybe this is the very reason why they were so afraid to ask Jesus about what he meant. With their eyes fixated on greatness, there's no room for a crucified Messiah. But Jesus teaches them the key to true greatness in his kingdom. And he does this with an amazing object lesson. He puts before them a little child. Children in Jesus' day were not worthy of honor. When Jesus talks about receiving and, and welcoming someone, a child in particular, uh, he, he, he's talking about a cultural custom of, of receiving a guest into your home. And there was an unspoken rule in the ancient world that you only were to do something like this. You would only receive or welcome someone if they were of equal or greater status than you. And the reason is obvious, right? That person is the only one who has the status, who has the honor, who has the greatness, to give you a boost. And their company, you've got potential to rise. But Jesus puts before them a child. And they're in this society, a nobody. Puts this child right at his side at that very place of honor that they're debating, that they're they're arguing over. And, And listen to what he says Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. You see what Jesus has done? He's taken their argument and he's flipped it upside down. He's made this child this nobody. His chief ambassador. It's like a CEO introducing you to the custodian in his company and saying, "He'll be handling all my business from here on out. Whatever he says, take it. Take it as my very word to you." You're saying what? A custo- this custodian representing a CEO. That's like what Jesus is doing when he puts before them this child. Because the disciples must lower themselves, humble themselves, to let go of their pursuit of worldly greatness. To do what Jesus has been doing all along. Moving towards the leper. Moving towards the people with zero social capital. Isn't that the kind of humble service that explains all of Jesus' ministry? He's the eternal Son of God, clothed with immense power, privilege beyond our understanding. But what did did Jesus do? Did he grasp? Did he grab at this divine prerogative? No. No. Philippians 2 tells us something so different. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of status. He emptied himself of privilege. He emptied himself of any need to prove importance. He became like what? Like a little child. He became a child. The very beginning of Luke. He humbled himself we'll see even to the point of death, death on a cross. And now Jesus calls his disciples, he calls us to the same humble greatness. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Brothers and sisters, we cannot have true greatness without humility. Another epic failure of a faithless generation, but again, We can't sit comfortably in our seats without taking this to heart. How often are our relationships marked by power plays? How often do we move towards the people who might say something interesting to us? Might have some connection we can seize on later. And how often do we gravitate away from the awkward folks? Yes, children. How often do we go without talking to children? And so, this failure we need to take to heart. Jesus calls us to seek greatness through humility. Do the disciples finally get the lesson? Has it sunk in? Not quite. No. A final epic fail just to make, make it all crystal clear where the disciples still stand and will stand all the way to Jerusalem. They're going to be working on these things. What have we seen? A faithless generation wants glory without suffering. A faithless generation wants greatness apart from humility. And now, we need to see that a faithless generation wants status more than service. It's amazing. Jesus has just called them to breathtaking humility. And how does John respond in verse 49? John answered Jesus. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, if you're any, if you're like me at all, this is incredible. This is John's response to Jesus calling for humility to say, oh, 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 by the way, master, uh, we saw, we saw a dude trying to cast out demons. and We said, hey, don't do that because you're not really with us. You know, John doesn't get it at all. Jesus has just called the disciples to let go of their privilege, to release their status, and to seek greatness through humility. And what's John still fixated on? He's concerned about protecting the status of his group as the exclusive exorcists. He's concerned about this guy perhaps moving in on on that place of greatness that they've all been eyeing. In fact, he's so concerned that he goes out of his way to tell this disciple to stop casting out demons in Jesus' name. And here's the irony of all this. This random guy is doing the very thing that the the disciples failed to do at the beginning of this passage. We've come full circle. They couldn't cast out demons, and here is a man doing that very thing, and yet they're trying to stop him. Jesus responds, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Epic fail. Let's take it to heart for a minute. Does this feature of a faithless generation also reflect us? I think we need to let that sit. Because are we bothered when those outside our fold, outside of our denomination, succeed in ways that that, that we fail at? This is one for, for those of us in the OPC who, who pride ourselves on theological accuracy to really take to heart. How often do we, do we see those outside of our denomination succeeding where we fail? And how often do we try to explain away their success by pointing to all the areas where they don't have their theological, uh, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted. Sometimes we can be so focused on our status, so focused on holding on to that privileged place we have in the kingdom. The service for Jesus gets second place. What do we need? We need Jesus' words to sink into our ears. That's the one clear command in this passage that just hits us right where we're at, that hits Jesus' disciples right where they're at. We're prone to the same failures of this faithless generation. We need to really let it sink in. Sync- let these words sink in. We cannot have glory apart from suffering. We cannot have greatness apart from humility. We cannot have status apart from service for our Savior. And second, we need to see, yes, we need to see our epic failures the disciples' epic failures. But don't stop there. Because we need to see the great patience of our Savior in this text. He asked that question, how long must I bear with you? How long did Jesus bear with his disciples? All the way on that long road to Jerusalem. All the way... To the cross where he suffered and died for their sins, for their failures. He was faithful all that long road of their faithlessness. And isn't this, it the same with us? How long will Jesus bear with us? How long will he bear with our generation when we are faithless? Twisted. He's promised us that he'll, he'll be with us all the way to glory. And he calls us to humble ourselves, to come to him, to walk the way of the cross, to do this confident. He is our gracious savior. He's with us all the way. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for the, the frank words in this passage. Words that hit the disciples and that hit us. That time after time, disciples in Jesus' presence failed. We are marked by failure too, Lord. But you are patient, You bear with us, and you have given us every tool to rely upon you, to humble ourselves, to depend upon your great work in us. So we pray now that you would be doing that very thing. Take us all the way to glory, and and let us be marked, Lord, not by faithlessness, not by failure, but by a faithful commitment to our Savior and and to the pattern of his cross all the way to that glory that you've promised. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.